Over the past five years, KALW's Nancy Mullane has had unprecedented access to California's prisons and the inmates living inside of them. You'll notice this is um, individual cells, five tiers. And I believe, what is it, almost 900? There's 414 cells in there. And, oh, okay, and then times two, because times there's two, two men in each cell. Two men in so, part, yeah. so 800 yours? and some. I'm on the third tier on the other side. We Do can we go get up. to go around? Yes, yeah. We just didn't want to go by the showers there. KLW's Nancy Mullane is taking a tour of San Quentin Prison. While she was reporting on criminal justice issues, Nancy noticed that there were entire cell blocks and areas within the state's prisons where no press were allowed to go including the security housing unit inside Pelican Bay State Prison. Last October, Nancy interviewed Scott Kernan, then Undersecretary of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And, full disclosure, Scott is my cousin. Nancy confronted him with this concern. For a SHU facility, a lot of press have just given up because you know you can't get access to an inmate in a SHU facility for an interview. Okay, that's a fair criticism. That's sad. That that. Um, but I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to my communications guy, and um, chat with him about what we've talked about, and see what arrangements I can make and get back to you. Over the next five months, Nancy followed up on Undersecretary Kernan's promise. In February, she was cleared to conduct an interview with an inmate inside his cell in the security housing unit. You can get killed over uh, disrespect or certain things like that. But isn't it true that you can get killed by a debriefing? Yes. Uh, CDC provides uh, opportunity to keep us safe from uh, active gang members. Um, I always run that risk. Uh, that an accident can happen. You know, I, I don't know. After she left the shoe, Nancy pushed for access to other restricted areas of California's prisons, some never before visited by a reporter. That effort led to an interview with the secretary of the CDCR, Matthew Kate, the one person who could give her final approval for press access inside the most secure prison facilities in the state. I'll consider it. I'm happy to have a, a further conversation about, you know, is there some way to get access, for example, to death row in San Quentin. You know, I, I do want people to see the conditions there, for example, because we've done a lot to improve the conditions at, at San Quentin. I, I go there myself on a pretty regular basis because it was pretty bad. And so I, I do want people to see that. Uh, we've given some access to the secured housing units in Pelican Bay. But the question is, if, if you're saying five, six years ago the conditions at death row were pretty bad, um, but now they're cleaned up, so maybe we'll get death row access. Well, what about the places where we still don't have access? What if the conditions are pretty bad there now? I mean, you can tell me, to, you know, you can say the conditions are cleaned up. But as a member of the press, that's our role, is to observe and report. Soon after, the CDCR secretary notified Nancy that she would be the first reporter in more than eight years to go inside San Quentin's death row and the first reporter ever to visit the protective housing unit at Corcoran State Prison. All of this has come while the state legislature has been debating how much prison access to give the media. Over the weekend, Governor Jerry Brown vetoed Assembly Bill 1270, 
which would have given reporters the ability to request interviews with specific inmates. While the governor has said he does not want to glorify crime, advocates for the bill contend it would ensure punishment is justifiable. Today, KALW begins the first of a six-part series following Nancy Mullane in her effort to increase media access to prisons. We join her as she travels seven hours north of San Francisco to Crescent City and Pelican Bay State Prison. That's where more than 1,100 of the inmates considered to be the most dangerous and influential are locked up in the state's security housing unit, also known as the SHU. Here's Nancy. Crescent City is the northernmost town on the California coast. Pelican Bay State Prison is a 20-minute drive north of that. The entrance to the prison is tucked back behind a small opening in the wall of redwoods that line the narrow two-lane road. Inside the clearing, it looks as if someone has taken a giant weed whacker to the towering trees. Left behind is a barren, bowl-shaped landscape filled with razor wire fencing and single-story cement block compounds. Yeah, Chris Acosta. Hey, so nice How you doing, Nancy? Good. Chris Acosta, Good. the prison's public information officer, introduces me to Warden Greg Lewis. He's got dark hair, broad shoulders, and cautious eyes. Warden Lewis invites me to take a seat at the end of a long conference table. I never aspired to be a warden, I'll tell you that. But uh, here I am. I've spent the last 20 years working in high-security prisons. After months of negotiations, the press office of the CDCR, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation in Sacramento, has given me permission to not only go inside the prison's security housing unit, but for the first time to interview a SHU inmate inside his cell. Now sitting across the table from Warden Lewis, it's clear he was never informed I would have this sort of access. Acosta, the public information officer, steps in to try to clear things up. He's cut up. That's what we said. You know. Right. That I'm, I'm fine with whatever restrictions, but... Uh, at this point, I'm going to allow you to interview the inmate through his cell door. But Terry Thornton said that this was approved. I told her that was the condition. Well, that has not been shared with me. Well, that was the condition of my, my interview. That's what I, I, I okay. established. Can you turn that me. off, please? We're going to take a break. And- I turn off my recorder. The warden tells Acosta to get Terry Thornton on the phone. Thornton is the press secretary based in Sacramento who approved the terms of my access. Still, it doesn't look good. While we wait for a resolution, Warden Lewis tells me about his prison. The security housing unit, the SHU, was built in 1989. He says it was constructed in one of the most remote areas of the state to isolate the state's most influential gang members. With a nod from the warden, I turn my recorder back on. I think the SHU gives us the ability to stop the communication from this leadership to subordinates within our correctional institutions. I think it's been very effective. Effective Um, now, maybe. But Warden Lewis admits that prior to last year's hunger strike, things had deteriorated inside the shoe. Last summer, thousands of inmates throughout the state stopped eating to protest conditions in the shoe. That prompted Scott Kernan, the undersecretary of the CDCR, to fly to Pelican Bay to check up on the situation. And actually, I sat out there with Scott when he met with the inmates. 
and it wasn't a negotiation. It was a commitment he made to him to review this. Prior to the strike, Warden Lewis says inmates inside the shoe at Pelican Bay were not getting access to the same goods and services as shoe inmates inside other institutions, such as Corcoran and Tehachapi. Now, he says, that's been corrected. We are committed to standardizing how our shoes operate because there is some disparity between the shoes and their allowable food items and their allowable property and in television programming. So we're, we're reviewing those. Um, so we are moving forward. But on the larger issues, such as the department's commitment to reviewing gang management strategies and creating new shoe policies, Lewis says it's going to take a whole lot more time before proposals are turned into policy. It is a very long and extensive process, yes. Acosta returns. I will be permitted to go inside the cell of a shoe inmate but he will have to sit outside the open door of his cell, straddling a chair, his hands cuffed behind him, armed officers standing nearby. Agreed. Acosta leads me out the back door of the administration building and into an electrified high-security sally port. The two entrances to the high-voltage cage are operated remotely by a guard watching from a nearby tower, so no one can enter or exit the inmate side of the institution without being visually cleared. That goes out to the no man's land. Clear, C-section! As the gate on the far side pulls back, we step onto an expansive barren field of gravel. Stretched out before us, a sidewalk leads to a compound of cement block buildings a few hundred yards away. That's, that's the shoe. That's the security housing. It's so beautiful here. That's where I prefer to live. But look at the mountains and the trees. and Can they see outside? No. If you look here, there's no external windows in the security housing unit. All the natural light that's given to them is uh, through these skylights. You actually can't see it from here. Boy, it's just so... I guess there's... So if anybody tries to get out, you would see them clearly because it's just oh, that's, that's barren. It's, it's no man's land. That's why there's no shrubbery out here. That's why there's no there's trees nothing. out here. Mm-hmm. No, because... Especially at night, all the big lights, trees, shrubs, features, throw long shadows. They're easy to lay down in and obscure yourself. They're hiding spots. A big open expanse like this of no man's land is what you want. So so somebody walking across it, you're able to recognize very quickly. This way? Yes. At the end of the long walkway, Acosta pulls open a heavy door and walks down a narrow hallway, which opens up to an octagonal central compound. Moving deeper into the prison's security housing unit, Acosta and I flash our photo ID cards again and again as we pass through one sally port after another. Okay, your sheet cleared? Yeah. We'll give her a vest. Okay. We're, we're gonna, once we get in here, we'll put a, uh, give you a vest to wear once we go inside. Thank you. Thank you. Security housing unit. You've been around alarms before? Mm-hmm. All right. If there is an alarm, we'll have you stand against the wall. We'll stay with you. There'll be a lot of responding staff, a lot of keys running by. Just stay out of the way and we'll respond to it appropriately. Stopping at one of the command posts, Acosta collects a dark green puncture proof security vest. We're in the security housing unit right now. And I'm going to have to put a vest on. Yes, you are. Okay, I'll take this off. He helps me pull the stiff vest over my clothes. 
Yeah, that was fun. Would you rather put it on underneath? No, 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 this is fine. This is the way? This is Seaside. This is 136. I follow Acosta into a long corridor in one of the SHU units. Overhead is a walkway where officers can patrol the area. And as we move down the corridor, there are locked steel doors on either side. About midway, Acosta stops and stands completely still. Um, There's a lot of men housed down here in SHU, but just take five seconds and listen. What do you hear? A few keys, their steps, a clang. People think of prison as being a very chaotic, very crazy place. It tends to be pretty calm down here in the security housing unit. It's quiet, it's very controlled, the inmates are very quiet. Um, you know, people always think that it's some horrible, torturous environment. Nobody's chained to the walls down here, you can't hear screams echoing off the walls. With that, he turns and walks through one of the doors that's been left open. We enter the central core of one shoe unit. Fanning out in a circle around the core are six shoe pods. Each has its own rusty red security door filled with small holes, and inside each pod is an open space and eight cells. Each cell has its own perforated door to allow the inmates to get access to air and light and to talk with one another. People talk about the isolation of shoes, um, but when they come out to yarn, they're released from their cell. They can walk to tier unescorted. They stop at their neighbor's cells and talk to their neighbors. Um, they, you know, they come out to shower. They stop at their neighbor's cells. Their neighbors stop at their cells. They talk with each other all day long within their individual housing pods. While I peer through one steel door into one of the pods, an officer in a uniform approaches. It's Lieutenant Rick Graves. He says for the past 28 years, he's worked in the shoe and has come to respect what it takes for men inside the shoe to survive. What he's got in his cell and what his routine is every day or each day of the week becomes his entire life. And if you mess with that routine in some way, it can really screw with some people and they they can't handle it. One break in their daily routine is a visit from a reporter. For some inmates, this is the first time they've seen a member of the press in years. Standing just outside the pod, I move my microphone closer to the door and listen in. The dozen men locked up in their cells are talking about me, who I am, why I'm here, and what I want to know. Acosta waves his hand motioning for the officer in the control booth above to unlock the pod steel door. As I step inside, the inmates stop talking. They are looking, listening. Now inside the pod, there's a large open area with eight cells. Four of the cells are on the floor where I'm standing. Another four are up on the second floor. Looking up, a huge skylight fills the whole area with bright natural light. So, so they'll come out here for an hour and a half a day and uh, get their exercise and um, then rotate um, for the next um, inmate for he have his time to exercise. And hour and a half, next person, next person, next person. At the back of the pod is a door that leads to a recreation yard. The yard is really just a 30-foot square cement box with high gray walls. Above, half of the ceiling is covered in wire, but is open to the sky and rain. The other half of the ceiling is covered in clear plexiglass. 
Officer Rob Hansen is the floor cop for this shoe unit. Most of the yard time they spend out here, they'll spend right here in the drain. That's a telephone. You, you, can, you can communicate through the piping system from unit to unit to unit, and that's how word spreads between the units or through the doors. This one connects to the pod next door. Lieutenant Graves, so the other officer standing in the, the yard, interrupts. He says not all inmates in the shoe want to communicate surreptitiously through the drain. He says inmates who have left the gang lifestyle and have gone through the prison's debriefing process don't want the option of communicating with active gang members. So they allow the drain to fill with water and don't complain when it does. This drain here, no one's complained about it being plugged up, but in an active unit, they, the inmates would never allow that to happen. An active unit meaning they're not debriefing? Correct, correct. Back in 2006, prison authorities decided to try a new tactic that would control the flow of communication in the shoe from gang leaders to their subordinates. Instead of housing gang leaders in pods throughout the shoe, they decided to move all the leaders, what one authority called all the alpha dogs, into one isolated section of the shoe, cutting off communication to their gang members. It has been extremely effective in reducing criminal activity um, within the prisons. It had an immediate effect within the other prisons and on the streets. It, it's harder for a leader to talk to a leader and get his message out to a soldier to go out and, and follow through with his directive. So it's like taking the head off the snake. The body doesn't know which way to go. Since the prison isolated the gang leaders, Graves says there's been a steady uptick in the number of inmates asking to debrief, that is to leave their gang affiliation. They write a biography of their entire gang life, everybody they knew, everybody that required them to do something, everything that they did do, where they were at, where they knew them, and it's a full biography of their gang activity. Is hey, it uh, possible that they can come in and just give a name just to, so they can get out? Have no, told? it's a real in-depth process. The process is double-checked by our staff here. They tell us if they know anything about the whereabouts of drugs, weapons, uh, their gang activity hits out on staff or hits out on inmate uh, where they've been ordered to be assaulted, things like that. And we follow up on all that. And once they validify his statements, then um, they know that he's been forthright and completely honest. Did, has and, anybody ever come to you and said, I want to debrief? Yes. I've had, I've had many um, want to start that process. And I do encourage them when I interview them from time to time about other issues. I, I tend to bring this up, particularly if they're a, a, a very young inmate, for example. I talk to them a little bit about their history and their background, their, their family, and and how old they were when they came to prison and how long they've been in with the gang. And, and I try to encourage them to think early on in their life about what to expect later on in life and ask them to, I just plant seeds in their mind to get them to think about the consequences of where they're headed. Even so, Graves says, not every inmate who decides to debrief sticks with it. We have had inmates that say, hey, no, no, I don't want none of this. And I don't want none of this. What do you mean this? The debriefing process. Because they lived a life of secrecy for so long and don't tell or else we'll kill you mentality. Yeah, they, they, they get in here and they think there's a bunch of rats in here. I don't, I'm not a rat. I don't want to be a rat. But you really can't get into this program without having first told on a bunch of people.
Leaving the yard and stepping back inside the pod, Acosta leads me to the cell of Ruben Ruiz. He debriefed in 2011. Standing on the other side of his cell door, I squint to make eye contact, choosing one hole to focus my eyes on his eyes. Ruiz is a young-looking man in his mid-30s, with a short buzz cut, chiseled face, and lean body. He's wearing clean white boxer shorts and a white t-shirt. He tells me why he's in prison. I, went, I, was, a, I was a kid. I went to the liquor store to buy some beer. When I was in the liquor store, I thought, we could get away with it and run out, you know. And from that moment on, everything unraveled until to, 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 to somebody ending up dying behind it. Back in 1992, at the age of 17, Ruiz was convicted under the felony murder rule and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He hopes that by undergoing the debriefing process, eventually prison authorities will transfer him out of the shoe in Pelican Bay to Kern Valley State Prison. That way, he'll be a little closer to the family he now draws pictures of to fill the walls of his cell. That's my, that's my grandmother. Mm. Up in the left-hand corner, it says love. Oh, yeah. You know, it's kind of cut off a little bit from the... Does she come and visit? No, I haven't been able to see her. I, I, she has visited one time. This was maybe four years ago, four mm-hmm. or five years ago. Does anybody else visit you? My, my parents visit me, my sisters visit me, and my nieces and nephew visit me once or twice a year. Ruiz says since he was sent to the shoe, he's gotten a business certificate and taken 30 units of college classes. And now, because of a change in the law, he faces the possibility of parole. We leave Ruiz's cell. Acosta says we have to hurry if there's going to be enough time for me to interview another inmate in the shoe. He tells me this will be the first time a reporter has interviewed a shoe inmate in his cell. As we walk, Acosta explains the terms of the interview. So what we're going to do is we're going we'll to get inside the cell, and um, they'll cuff him up, secure him, we'll put him on the chair, then... Then we'll slide the chair up, then you can ask him whatever. Okay, and I'll be inside and he'll be on the outside. I'll, I'll be in there with you. All right. And who is this person? Luca. First name? Robert Luca has been in prison since 1990 on a murder conviction. At the time, he was 16 years old. He's been here for a while. While I look around Luca's 9 by 12 foot cell, he sits straddling a padded chair just outside his cell door. He watches me study his world. Wires from a set of handmade speakers lead to a prison-approved television. Pencil drawings of a leopard and a woman are taped to the walls. In front of the cement pad he has for a bed, Luca has built a small desk. The legs are made of rolled-up manila envelopes. Others have been taped together to create a thick writing surface. Luca says he joined a gang when he was just 13. After getting locked up, he says he fell right in with the prison gang culture. I received shoe terms for uh, participating in gang activity. Assaults, uh, stabbings. You were involved in I was involved in, yes. Then in 2011, when he was 37, Luca decided to debrief and leave the gang. It took me some time because uh, I was so indoctrinated in the ideology of gang culture and life. Uh, so there was a, a lot of thinking behind it, a lot of soul-searching, uh, a lot of big questions. What's the purpose of life? He says for inmates like himself, 
The goal in the shoe is to keep a sound mind. You wake up early, um, you discipline yourself, you study, you read, you draw, you write, um, you do everything possible that you have access to. And uh, you take day by day. You, you can't really, it's like kind of, you got to kind of have like tunnel vision. You can't think about the future too far ahead. You can't think about your past. That might drive you nuts. If he were still active in the prison gang, Lucas says he wouldn't be allowed to speak with me. Now that he's out of the gang and making decisions on his own, as an independent, if incarcerated adult, it's a little unnerving. Since I debriefed, uh, I'm learning to feel what hope feels like. And it's, it's indescribable, but... Uh, I'm very grateful to still be alive and, and, and still have this opportunity. Um, I, before, I used to think I was repaying my victim by condemning myself. But all along, uh, I can see now I was just making it about me. Me and my pain, me and my guilt, me and my condemnation, me and my pride. Um, I've been able to put that all aside and make it about what it really was about the whole time. It was uh, my penalty for a crime I committed. And that's the way it should have been from the start. Are you done paying? No, I'm just barely getting started. As I leave Luca and begin to make my way out of the shoe, I peer into one of the pods of cells where inmates are held who have not yet debriefed. Large sheets of thick plastic are screwed over the porous cell doors, making any conversation among inmates in this pod nearly impossible. Acosta says these inmates are not available for interviews. What their world in the shoe is like remains a mystery. For Cross Currents, I'm Nancy Mullane. Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvador and pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America. <laughs> 